Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 11.08 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's, well, it's Halloween, y'all. Happy Halloween, 31st of October. 2022. This is episode 636 of Bitcoin and booze, the 14th anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper. Yep. Dropped on October 31st. I don't think we really appreciate the timing of dropping the Bitcoin white paper on Halloween. I think it was, I clearly it was on purpose, but I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto could have picked All Saints Day, could have picked Day of the Dead, he could have picked Christmas. I, you know, I, I don't think that the paper just happened to be ready to go on Halloween. No, I, I don't think so at all. I think that paper was done and I think he chose Halloween to basically tell the financial world, boo. And I think that's exactly what happened except that they really weren't listening the way that they should have been listening. Otherwise, they would have been all over this the very first year that Bitcoin was alive, when they could have crushed it, when they could have stood a chance to defend themselves against the inevitable demise that they are going to suffer. Well, too bad. Y'all missed the boat, and now it's just all over but the crying. So... With that said, in the celebration of the 14th anniversary of the drop of the Bitcoin white paper from Satoshi Nakamoto, let's start off another Halloween story uh, about the white paper, but this time this one from Bitcoin Magazine and Peter Chawaga, who writes, Dustin Trammell on the original white paper day, corresponding with Satoshi and the growing need for Bitcoin. On October the 31st, 2008, the pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto submitted the white paper outlining Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system to MetzDowds.com's cryptography mailing list. Shortly after the project launched in January of 2009, a mailing list subscriber named Dustin Trammell began contributing to the project, asking questions and submitting bugs to the paper's authors or author and becoming one of the first people on earth to be orange-pilled by Bitcoin's formative outline. Quote, when first reading it, I remember being impressed that someone had discovered a way to prevent double spending with digital currency. Being fairly libertarian-minded and interested in alternative currencies and economic systems, I was excited for the software to be released so that I could take a look at it in action. End quote. Nakamoto's paper outlined a vision of digital currency that would enable direct payments between parties, quote, without going through a financial institution, end quote. 
It explained the potential roles of digital signatures, a network of nodes screening for valid transactions, and the incentives of block rewards and transaction fees. And looking back some 14 years later, other aspects of the introduction seem particularly prescient to Trammell as well. Quote, when I initially read the paper, the importance of the proof of work consensus mechanism didn't really sink in. Whereas today, I've realized that proof-of-work consensus really is the innovation, he said. Quote, I also first read the paper with more of an eye to the technology, whereas reading it today, it's a bit more obvious that there was an inherent generalized decentralization philosophy to it as well, end quote. Trammell, a.k.a. I parentheses Ruid, which actually looks like Druid when you spell it out on paper, is an information security research scientist, venture capitalist, and avid cosplayer. Oh joy. <laughs> that inaugural white paper day served as his introduction to digital currencies, but he quickly found that the project sparked an enduring interest. He became one of the first Bitcoin miners back when it was possible to successfully find blocks with the CPU, and he received Bitcoin directly from Nakamoto. Quote, from my brief correspondence with Satoshi, they seem to have a very pragmatic view of technology and seem to be open-minded to suggestions and advice, whether they ended up going in that direction or not, Trammell explained. Satoshi and I specifically had some conversations around the insecurities in the, of, of the ability to send Bitcoin by IP addresses, and Satoshi ended up dropping that feature from the software entirely, he continued. Based on that original experience, Trammell encourages anyone celebrating this year's White Paper Day to think of Nakamoto's seminal work as a practical blueprint, outlining a project that should be somewhat amenable to change if it has buy-in from its community. Quote, I think, had Satoshi stuck around longer than they did, they would have been open-minded and willing to work with the consensus of the Bitcoin developer community to take Bitcoin in the direction that was best for Bitcoin, whether it stuck to the original outline of the paper or not, he said. I think Satoshi was pragmatic enough to do what they thought was right for Bitcoin at the time and under potentially ever-changing circumstances. Despite its inauspicious beginnings and straightforward nature, running less than 3,500 words, yet introducing the underpinnings of blockchain technology and a $396 billion asset to the world, the Bitcoin white paper has come to be akin to a religious text among diehard Bitcoiners. And it has inspired pale imitations from countless altcoin pumpers. Hosting the white paper text has become an act of defense against those that might attempt to co-opt the open source revolution and, as one of Nakamoto's few messages to the world, it has become much more than just a technical roadmap. But for Trammell, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, ranks as a dictionary definition white paper despite any reading between the lines that Bitcoin Core's proponents and detractors may attempt. Quote, White papers are essentially a technical description of a problem and a proposed solution to that problem. And Satoshi's Bitcoin white paper fits that definition perfectly. Anyone that then tries to pigeonhole a technical project into a white paper's original definition or description of it, like, for example, the Bitcoin Satoshi's vision folks, are inhibiting the project's growth and development and ultimately its success. Technology r rarely can continue succeeding without modification and must be free of constraints to do so, such as any perceived limitation of its original design documentation, end quote. 
with a unique perspective on how the idea of Bitcoin resonated in 2008 compared to today. Trammell noted that, if anything, Nakamoto's invention is even more desperately needed now than when it was first introduced. Quote, the economic environment seems to be much more dire than uh, today than back then, he explained. <coughs> Obviously, Bitcoin was released during the 2008 economic crisis, but since then, we've had multiple other crises. And today, we're actively observing fiat currencies fail around the world. This seems to be a near-perfect storm of the economic environment within which Bitcoin was designed to thrive. Still, it is a uniquely Bitcoin thing to do to commemorate the publication date of a brief technical document as much of the world is turning its attention to spooky costumes and trick-or-treating. But refocusing on Bitcoin's humble, pseudonymous introduction, its technical underpinnings, and quietly revolutionary fundamentals can serve this community well, as long as the simplicity of its origins aren't all overblown. Quote, as a big fan of Bitcoin-themed holidays and a big fan of Halloween, I now celebrate both holidays on October the 31st, Trammell said. While the Bitcoin white paper is obviously a very important historical and technical document, we need to remember that it is what it is, which is simply a white paper. It's a statement of a problem and a proposed technical solution to that problem. Satoshi also coded the solution and released it to the world and shepherded it for a short time, but beyond that, Bitcoin has a life of its own, and technology always grows beyond its original specification. Its original function and its original community, including its founders. This is the nature of technology. Agreed, Peter Chihuahua. Not a terrible write-up. Um, I still think that we are missing the importance of the drop date of the white paper. I mean, Halloween of all days. And I do not believe for an instant that it just happened to be ready to go on Halloween. So, you know, you might think about what your view of the origins of the selection of that date might be. But I think it was literally to tell the world boo. But the statement that Peter says or that Daniel, uh, sorry, uh, was, I get things, Daniel, let me scroll up. My God, uh, Dustin, sorry, Dustin Trammell. Dustin makes a statement where he says that now Bitcoin is needed much more today than it was back in 2008. I think that Satoshi Nakamoto, he, she, the group of people, I don't know. Nobody really knows. Uh, I think they saw this day. I think they saw that. I think they saw this day, which was why the chancellor on the second brink of uh, bailouts for banks was written in the header in the header of the very first world well, of the Genesis block. I think they knew the inevitability of what was to come. It wasn't like we needed it back then, you know, just to get us through this, you know, the next few years until everything got okay. It was never going to be okay. And I think they knew that. I think that was really evident. I mean, I remember everything about life pre-2001 and 9-11 it wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's not like the world was just all fine and dandy and shit like that. But think about it. At the day after September 11th, 2001, it has been nothing but one global disaster after another. Whether it's financial, 
whether it's, you know, like the media just obviously getting turned around and weaponized against the population of the world and basically just feeding them lies all day long, yet you know, to, you know, other wars happening everywhere. And it's just, it's, it's nothing but a shit show. And I think from 2001 up to 2008, right? I think that that period of time that Satoshi Nakamoto was most likely thinking about how to solve this problem with the double spend, that Satoshi Nakamoto group, he, she, whatever, understood the future. Not a prophecy, just doing math and understanding that by 2022, it was not going to be better. It was going to be infinitely worse. And if shit doesn't change, it's going to be infinitely worse. And one, one of the things that we do know is that nothing is going to change unless we find some sly roundabout way to pull the power of worldwide governments and put them in the hands of people, regular, unelected people that don't have any more power over each other because they're all following the same rule set. And that rule set is written in math. No, no, no. We don't need Bitcoin today more than we needed it in 2008. If anything, we needed it the day before 9-11. But we didn't get it then. We got it in 2008 on Halloween, 14 years ago today. You want to find, read something else that's really scary? Let's read this one. This has nothing to do with Bitcoin. However, I'm sure that you guys have seen it all over the place as of late. It's an article from The Atlantic written by some chick named Emily Oster. We'll get into her background here in a little bit. Not much of background, but just the gleanings of her Twitter profile. And that's, that'll be enough. Um, she's written a piece entitled, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. Oh, really? So you want us to... You want us to just forget what's happened. Let's see how she outlines her pandemic amnesty. In April 2020, when nothing else to do, my family took an enormous number of hikes. We all wore cloth masks that I made myself. We had a family hand signal, which the person in the front would use if someone was approaching on the trail and we needed to put on our masks. Oh my God. Once, when another child got too close to my then four-year-old son on a bridge, he yelled at her, social distancing. These precautions were totally misguided. In April of 2020, no one got the coronavirus from passing someone else hiking. Outdoor transmission was vanishingly rare. Our cloth masks made out of old bandanas wouldn't have done anything anyway. But the thing is, we didn't know. I have been reflecting on this lack of knowledge thanks to a class I'm co-teaching at Brown University on COVID. We've spent several lectures reliving the first year of the pandemic, discussing the many important choices we had to make under conditions of tremendous uncertainty. Some of these choices turned out to be better than others. To take an example, close to my own work, there is an emerging, if not universal, consensus that schools in the United States were closed for too long. The health risks of in-school spread were relatively low, whereas the cost of students' well-being and educational progress were high. The latest figures on learning loss are alarming. 
But in spring and summer of 2020, we had only glimmers of information. Reasonable people, people who cared about children and teachers, advocated on both sides of the reopening debate. Another example, when the vaccines came out. We lacked definitive data on the relative efficacies of the Johnson & Johnson shot versus the mRNA options from Pfizer and Moderna. The mRNA vaccines have won out. But at the time, many people in public health were either neutral or expressed a Johnson & Johnson preference. This misstep wasn't nefarious. It was the result of uncertainty. Obviously, some people intended to mislead and made wildly irresponsible claims. Remember when the public health community had to spend a lot of time and resources urging Americans not to inject themselves with bleach? That was bad. Misinformation was, and remains, a huge problem. But most errors were made by people who were working in earnest for the good of society. Given the amount of uncertainty, almost every position was taken on every topic, and on every topic, someone was eventually proved right, and someone else proved wrong. In some instances, the right people were right for the wrong reasons. In other instances, they had a prescient understanding of the available information. The people who got it right, for whatever reason, may want to gloat. Those who got it wrong, for whatever reason, may feel defensive and retrench into a position that doesn't accord with the facts. All of this gloating and defensiveness continues to gobble up a lot of social energy and to drive the culture wars, especially on the internet. These discussions are heated, unpleasant, and ultimately unproductive. In the face of so much uncertainty, getting something right had a hefty element of luck. <laughs> Sorry. It's difficult to get through this. And similarly, getting something wrong wasn't a moral failing. <clears throat> Treating pandemic choices as a scorecard on which some people racked up more points than others is preventing us from moving forward. We have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. We can leave out the willful, per willful purveyors of actual misinformation while forgiving the hard calls that people had no choice but to make with imperfect knowledge. Los Angeles County closed its beaches in summer of 2020. Ex post facto, this makes no more sense than my family's masked up hiking trips. But we need to learn from our mistakes and then let them go. We need to forgive the attacks too, because I thought schools should reopen and argue that kids as a group were not at high risk. I was called a teacher killer and a genocidaire genocidaire, I guess, whatever. It wasn't pleasant, but feelings were high, and I certainly don't need to dissect and rehash that time for the rest of my days. Moving on is crucial now because the pandemic created many problems that we still need to solve. Student test scores have shown historic decline, more so in math than in reading, and more so for students who were disadvantaged at the start. We need to collect data, experiment, and invest is high dosage tutoring more or less cost effective than extended school years? Have some states recovered faster than others? We should focus on questions like these because answering them is how we will help our children recover. Yeah, good luck. You're never going to answer them. But that's just me, whatever. Many people have neglected their health care over the past several years. Notably, routine vaccination rates for children, you know, for measles, pertussis, etc., are way down. Rather than debating the role that messaging about COVID vaccines had in this decline, we need to put all of our energy into bringing these rates back up. 
Pediatricians and public health officials will need to work together on community outreach, and politicians will need to consider school mandates. The standard saying is that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But dwelling on the mistakes of history can lead to a repetitive doom loop as well. Let's acknowledge that we've made complicated choices in the face of deep uncertainty and then try to work together to build back and move forward. Oh, fuck you! Sorry, it's almost as bad as being allergic to this shit. No, there will not be a pandemic amnesty. You are part of the problem, ma'am. Oster, Meyer, Wiener, whatever your fucking name is. We are not going to forgive you. We will never forget what you did, what you've done, and how you will, you'll be like a pit bull. It'll be like the next piece of raw meat that gets thrown over the fence of the world that you just glom onto and refuse to let go until it rots in your face and you go, you know, that this doesn't smell good anymore. I think I'll drop it. The fact that you won't, you people will, and I'm not talking about you guys that listen. You guys know who I'm talking to. You people that will not let go of something ever or even give an inch. We are not going to forget you. We are not going to forget. We're not going to forgive. There will be no pandemic amnesty. All of you fuckers belong in prison or worse. All of you. I can't put this any more succinctly. You knew what you were doing was wrong. And those people that still hold on to the fact or the, th what they thought was a fact of vaccinations work and don't cause any harm and they're safe and effective and blah, blah, blah. You're all going to go and reside in one of the nine circles of Dante's hell. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. The entire planet's population is in distress and will be in continued distress because of what you have done. It's all your fault. And for those of us that never got any of the vaccines, I will look forward to being able to not have to worry about amyloid clots forming in my blood vessels. I don't have to worry about that. I don't regret not getting vaccinated. It's not like the flu shot where the only regret that I would have used to have about getting a flu shot when I used to go get them was that I felt like crap for a day. No, this, this one, there is no amnesty. Do not give these people an inch. Do not allow them, do not accept their apology. Always remind them what they've done and the effects of that. Never let go. Be like them with the piece of meat that's thrown over the fence. Until you're just bored to death with it, don't give them an inch and see how they like it. Screw all these people. Now, who is this chick? Professor Emily Oster well, according to her bio and Twitter, she's unapologetically data-driven. Okay, so you made all these decisions for your family. You had a hand signal, for God's sake. Your four-year-old boy chastised a little girl for getting too close. And you 
had didn't have good data. You admitted it in your article, and yet you're unapologetically data-driven. Why? Because she is an economist at Brown University. <coughs> Has anybody else other than me discovered just how deep and wide the 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 pool of knowledge that an economist has. I mean, they can opine on anything. The climate, ecology, you know, virology, you know, epi epidemiology, apparently. Nothing is out of the purview of a Brown University economist. Now, she's written, she's written three books. Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and she also writes the Family Firm Parent Data Newsletter, which is about <clears throat> a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. Oh, my. She's very concerned about children, which is why, you know, right after she released this tweet that was my latest in the Atlantic, and then she links to this article, you know, that was seven hours ago, but four hours ago, she's got a picture of two cakes and one says it's got a it's got like decorations on it. No, it looks like a scissors and a little scalpel, and it says snip snip hooray. The other cake has what are obviously spermatoa on on the cake as little icing decorations swimming around, and it says so long swimmers. And what's her tweet it says lots of in depth vasectomy analysis this morning. Nice cake pictures. Helpful thoughts in the comment thread from people who have had the procedure as early as last week. Enjoy. Well, you know, your, your preponderance to want people to not have children doesn't really jibe with the fact that your entire newsletter is based around early school years, which are attended by what? Children. Mm, getting worked up. I can't, I, I, I just... I can't give these people any respect. I will, they'll never be allowed to apologize to me. And if they try, I just won't accept it. I will verbally decline their apology. I'm just done with these people. It, they're like walking, what do they call it? Uh, cognitive, they're walking little piles of cognitive dissonance. I mean, a woman that writes a school letter about school, you know, data-driven school for early years, talking about how great it is to not have kids. You do the math, man. You do the math. But I'll tell you what, if any one of you guys out there that listens to me allows any of these assholes to apologize to them and, and go away thinking that everything's going to be just okay, don't. It's not going to be okay. These people are still going to be out there and they're going to do the exact same thing with something completely different. And it will be another economist telling you how what you're doing that has nothing to do with the economy is bad. And they're going to make you feel like shit for it. And then a year, two, maybe three years down the road, maybe they'll try to apologize again. Now stop them dead cold right here. There is no apology. You do not get my acknowledgement of your apology. It's not going to happen ever, ever, ever. Now, Monsters are afoot. Which Bitcoin monster do you see in the mirror? Will Shulpkoff, writing for Bitcoin Magazine. Halloween is coming and it's time to face your fears. Can you honestly look at yourself in the mirror and not see something scary looking back? 
I draw inspiration from Dwadu Amahantu's article in Satoshi's journal for four different Halloween monsters that you may see in the mirror based on which type of Bitcoin investor you are. Newbie, technocrat, trader, or maximalist. So to the newbie in the mirror, AKA Casper the friendly ghost. So you want to buy Bitcoin, but if you don't, but what if you don't really want to be an investor? What if you just want to fly around as a friendly ghost and don't want to evaluate risk and reward responsibilities? Are you willing to just save the value of the work you've done for the future without getting tempted to join the other ghouls and the shenanigans? Now to the trader in the mirror, AKA the boogeyman. How tempted are ye to trade? Quote, it's a way to make money off of Bitcoin, end quote. When Bitcoin is the money, are you going to spin that altcoin roulette wheel or keep rolling the dice for snake eyes? If the boogeyman trades his Bitcoin for fiat, is he really a Bitcoiner or just a monster? To the technocrat in the mirror, AKA Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, are you sure you're not more attracted to blockchain technology than to Bitcoin? Dr. Jekyll appreciates proof of work and decentralized money. But when you hear about other protocols doing a merge, surge, verge, purge, and splurge, does Mr. Hyde emerge? Are you more tempted by ZK snarks, dank sharding, and soul-bound NFTs, or are you content with an ossifying blockchain that wants to simply be a once in a civilization monetary revolution for the entire world. To the maximalist in the mirror, aka the zombie. If you are if you truly are a maximalist, are you ready to be declared dead over and over again? Bitcoin is a volatile asset that's lost 90% of its value in short order many times. Can you become the living dead? Get back up every time the price falls down and hodl onto your risky Bitcoin for decades? What is dead may never die. To the final boss in the mirror, AKA your own reflection. For some, the scariest monster of all is to look in the mirror and see your own worst enemy, yourself. But stand firm, just as one BTC equals one BTC, you equals you. As you journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you'll find the greatest return is not the purchasing power of your Satoshis. But what you learn about yourself along the way, I've learned the more I give, the more I receive. So I'm happy to contribute more content to a medium for the plebs like Bitcoin Magazine. Thank you for your support during my scary journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I hope this article helps your self-reflection and keeps your torch alight as you press on further. What kind of monster are you? That's a really good question. I mean, at first, I was a little offended about the zombie, you know, the Bitcoin maximalist being referred to as the zombie. But actually, that was the most poignant one that, that I found is like, are you ready to be declared dead over and over and over again? Why, yes, because I have been declared dead many times and yet I'm still breathing. Let's see what the numbers are doing. CNBC, futures and commodities, oil, 
kind of taking it on the chin. 1.54% to the downside for West Texas Intermediate, $86.55 a barrel. Brent down just under half a point, or no, a full point, uh, $94.89. Natural gas. <laughs> ass. Oh my God. Up. Oh God. Is that right? 11.79% to the upside for a thousand cubic feet of the smelly stuff. Gasoline itself, however, is down a full three points to $2.81 a gallon. All the metal rocks are having a bad day, starting with gold. A third of a point to the downside, $1,638.80. Silver is the biggest winner insofar that it hasn't lost as much. It's basically down on scant, 0.01 to $19.14. Platinum is down 1.7. Copper is down 1.3. And palladium is down 2.8%. Now, agricultural futures are really interesting today, or at least one is, and that would be wheat, which is up 5.9% today. Yeah, well, you want to know why? Because Russia is not shipping grain. Yeah, they did that shit over the weekend. They were like, you know what? I just, yeah, we're just not going to ship any grain. And this is the effect. Grain prices basically soaring across the board. Soybeans up 1.3%, corn up 1.18%, sugar is up 2.28%, uh, and coffee is up 3.43%. Rice is up a full three points. Let's see what the indices are doing. Oh, they're not doing all that great today. Dow, <coughs> down a quarter of a point to 32,824 uh, points, on whatever the index is. S&P is down 0.52%. NASDAQ is down almost a full point. S&P is the only one that's got a reprieve. It is actually up 0.14%. Let's see what Bitcoin's doing. Yeah, it's doing its bouncing around, you know, 18 to 22,000 shit. It is actually at $20,401. And that is after... 400,000 BTC have been sent around the horn in that 24-hour period. With 1.49 BTC as the average transaction value, that's pretty low, guys. Median transaction value also low at 0.019 BTC or just under $400. And block times are hideously low. 8 minutes and 25 seconds with 0.08 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and a whopping 15 BTC taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. And with a 5.69% rise in hash rate, we're back up to all-time high looking levels of 267.83 exahashes per second. Dogecoin also in the news, you know, and I, if I traded shit coins, then I would have totally missed the thought of, you know, maybe I should buy some Doge because Elon's going to take over Twitter and blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't trade in shitcoin, so I don't have to worry about it. But Dogecoin has jumped from six United States pennies all the way up to 12.8 United States pennies, effectively a hundred percent increase. It's sad, but I keep trying to tell you guys these shit coins are never going to go away and they're always going to lose people money. Unless you know exactly what the fuck's going on behind each and every one of these shit coins. And I'm not talking about macroeconomics. That doesn't, honestly, that doesn't really affect shit coins. It's what people can trade on. That's what's really driving the shit coin market. 
So unless you know, you know, like a Du Quan personally, unless you know Charlie, you know, Lee personally, even though he's not supposedly sold all his Litecoin, I'm just saying you're always going to get the short end of the stick on altcoins. How do you combat against it? You buy Bitcoin, you hold Bitcoin, you don't shitcoin. It's that easy with 6,263 transactions waiting on three blocks to clear. We have a $392.6 billion market cap. That is 3.62% of gold's entire market cap. If you so choose, you may purchase 12.5 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,194,492.17 of. And 5,137 of those are in the Lightning Network, valued at $105.1 million, running over 16,519 nodes. Guys, we are losing nodes. This shit's got to stop. Run a node. Go, go get yourself, like, somehow or another, if you've got an old Raspberry Pi, go get, buy the software from my node. Or if you don't want to buy it, install it for free and you just don't get the one, you know, the one button upgrade. You have to do the upgrade yourself. Run it on a Raspberry Pi and then and then get your your lightning node going on the same Raspberry Pi. It comes with my node. It's easy. You're gonna be running to run an effective, an actual, not effective, an actual real dyed in the wool lightning node. You're not only going to be running the Lightning node, you'll have to run Bitcoin Core. So you will also effectively be adding to the power of the Bitcoin network itself when you run a Lightning node yourself. Go do it. We used to have 18,000 nodes on the Lightning network, guys. 18,000. We're down to 16,500. Only you can prevent dipshittery, okay? It's like Smokey the Bear. Right now, we have 78,900 payment channels and 66.7% of the entire Lightning Network is being run over Tor. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. <clears throat> Carrying on with the Halloween theme. Spooky things are afoot over there in Singapore. Terra co-founder Du Quan faces a $57 million class action lawsuit. Wow. You can't even find this guy. How do you sue somebody that you can't find? I mean, is he just still keeping all his money in bank? I don't know. If he's still keeping all of his money in bank accounts, you got to ask yourself what the hell these people are doing. Anyway. Andrew Asmakov is writing this one for Decrypt. Terraform Lab CEO and co-founder Duquan faces yet another legal battle, this time in Singapore. And in a court, which is set to hear a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of more than 350 international investors, they claim to have lost collectively $57 million in the collapse of the algorithmic stablecoin TerraUSD and its ecosystem, according to a Wall Street Journal report. The legal claim states that the UST stablecoin being pegged one-to-one to the U.S. dollar was designed to act as a store of value and as such was supposed to protect from the volatility of the cryptocurrency markets. Yeah, you got lied to, pal. The Terra ecosystem imploded, obviously, in May of this year with more than $40 billion of investors' wealth wiped out in a matter of weeks. Wiped out. 
Terra's collapse accompanied a massive crypto sell-off, sending the prices of Bitcoin and other top cryptocurrencies tumbling. The crash led to the bankruptcies of high-profile crypto lenders Celsius and Voyager, as well as a hedge fund named Three Arrows Capital and promoted or prompted increased scrutiny towards crypto investing and stable coins from regulators around the world. It is alleged that Quan, despite being aware of the structural weakness of the UST stablecoin, made fraudulent misrepresentations, inducing investors into purchasing the asset. <gasps> oh my God, say it isn't so. Who would have guessed? Oh my God. The lawsuit is led by Julian Moreno Beltran, a citizen of Spain who claims to have lost $1.1 million worth of Terra USD, and a Singapore native, Douglas Gan Yi Dong, Many other claimants who say that they are entitled to claim for the loss and damages suffered in purchasing UST tokens, as well as unspecified aggravated damages, invested tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in Terra USD, according to court documents. Other defendants in the lawsuit are the Singapore Incorporated Terraform Labs PTE Limited, the company's former head of research Nicholas Plotius, and the Luna Foundation Guard, a fund established to support the growth of the Terra ecosystem. The lawsuit was filed on September the 23rd, with the hearing scheduled for Wednesday, November the 2nd. Ooh, that's Day of the Dead. All right. Good timing there, pal. Spokesperson for Terraform, however rejected the allegations, adding that the firm will defend itself against the claims laid out in the lawsuit. Quote, there is a fundamental difference between a public market event and fraud, the spokesperson said in a statement cited by the WSJ. Quote, the risks were publicly known and discussed and the underlying code was open sourced. End quote. Kwan is also wanted by South Korean authorities who issued a warrant uh, an arrest warrant for the Terraform Labs boss back in September, charging him with violating the country's capital markets accounting, uh, or sorry, <laughs> violating the country's capital markets act, period. Interpol also approved South Korean prosecutors' request to issue a red notice for Kwan. Earlier this month, the South Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs canceled Kwan's passport. Well, he's already out of the country, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Whatever. The, the Terraform Labs chief was also slapped with the class action lawsuit in the United States back in June, while U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is repeated, reportedly investigating whether the company violated federal investor protection rules with the way it marketed UST. Despite facing numerous investigations into the collapse of Terra, Quan, whose whereabouts are still unknown, has denied allegations that the project was a fraud. He also claimed that he had personally lost nearly all of his net worth in Terra's crash. Yeah, that's bullshit. So they can't find a guy. They keep suing him and his companies. You, th you thought that Terra Luna, you know, was going to be over? No, man, this is like Quadriga CX up in Canada. It's like, the, it's like the crypto story that will not fucking go away. It's like Mt. Gox. It's a story that won't go away. So we've, we can now add a third story to the stories of Bitcoin that won't go away, and that is the Terra ecosystem, Duquan, and the Luna Foundation Guard. That entire thing is never going to go away. We've got, let's see, do I have this one? I do. I, how do I know it's not going to go away? Because yet another miner is in trouble. Helen Parts 
Cointelegraph Argo blockchain is at risk of closing if it fails further financing. The London Stock Exchange listed cryptocurrency firm Argo Blockchain has warned that it's at risk of ceasing operations due to a lack of financing. The crypto mining company Argo continues to explore new financing opportunities after failing to raise major capital from a strategic investor, uh, according to an announcement made today. That's October the 31st. Argo has been seeking to raise about 24 million British pounds via subscription for ordinary shares. Quote, the company no longer believes that this subscription will be consummated under the previously announced terms, Argo said in a statement. While Argo is exploring other financing options, there can be no assurance that it will sign any definitive agreements or consummate any details. The firm will continue to work to reach sufficient capital for at least the next 12 months from the day of the announcement, Argo noted. Argo will have to cut or event... What? No, sorry. This is a weird sentence. I'm just going to read it verbatim. Argo will have to cut or event halt operations in case it fails to raise capital during this period, the firm noted, stating, quote, Argo, or should Argo be unsuccessful in completing any further financing, Argo would become cash flow negative in the near term, that means tomorrow, and would need to curtail or cease operations, end quote. Amid the lack of financing, Argo has been taking measures to preserve cash and optimize liquidity. The company sold a uh, 3,843 brand new Bitmain S19J Pro miners for 5.6 million, which was the last batch of the original Bitmain order scheduled for installation in October of this year. Argo's total hash rate capacity remained at 2.5 exahashes per second. Previously, Argo has been actively selling its mined Bitcoin uh, in order to cut debt to Michael Novogratz's crypto investment firm, Galaxy Digital. In July, Argo sold another 887 BTC after previously getting rid of 637 BTC in June of 2022. In doing so, Argo became one of the many crypto mining firms that opted to self-mine BTC amid the bear market of 2022, including BitFarms, Core Scientific, and Riot Blockchain. Argo is not the only crypto mining firm that's been struggling to keep operating amid the ongoing bear. On October the 26th, Bitcoin miner Core Scientific filed forms with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission warning about potential bankruptcy proceedings. The firm cited unfortunate industry events like low BTC prices, increased electricity cost, and other issues. Here's my questions, folks. When Bitcoin was at $3,000, okay, this is after the $20,000, $19,800 run-up in 2017, and we crashed back down. Yes, we saw some miners get liquidated, but... Um, you know, and obviously things have changed. The, the miners today are bigger than they were back then. But the point, I still make the same damn point. Did I mean, people are, oh, it's a mining death spiral. It's a mining death spiral. Nobody's even talking about mining death spiral this time around. I, which I don't get. I figured that that FUD would come right out of the gates. But uh, back then with $3,600 Bitcoin, I didn't see a whole bunch of people losing their ass, right? Or at least I, I didn't see this many miners that were centralized miners going out of business. What, what, was, what, what did we know back then? 
that we seem to have forgotten today? Well, decentralization is key. That's what we were doing back then. That's why we didn't see these news stories. We didn't have major, huge ass miners that were banking on the legacy financial system and doing things the old way in the old world and bringing it to the new world of Bitcoin and wondering why they're losing their ass. Because you're taking loans, you're asking for venture capital, and you're doing it on a price based around, uh, let's say, $50,000 Bitcoin is when all, you know, a whole bunch of this stuff really started to get cranked up. When you should have been banking on $4,000 Bitcoin. Not because I think it's going to go back down to that price. I'm just saying, if you really don't want to get hit like all these people got hit, you you lowball the price. You only take out the money that you can afford to take out with your Bitcoin as if your Bitcoin was worth $5,000, not $50,000. How, how did we come to this? How can we have been not dead for 14 years and still have not figured out to not think in the legacy financial systems way of thinking? What is it that we're missing? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I hope one of you guys do. Maybe you'll give me a boostagram, which will come up at the end of the show. Now, let's see. Uh, Reserve Bank of India to reportedly launch a digital rupee pilot in November. Yay, Helen Parts, Cointelegraph. Reserve Bank of India is on track to debut a new central bank digital currency after announcing its digital rupee project in February. The Central Bank of India will launch the digital rupee pilot for the wholesale segment on November the 1st. Oh joy, All Saints Day. The pilot will involve nine, count them nine, locally operating banks, including the biggest Indian bank, the State Bank of India. According to a report by Reuters, other banks in the pilot will also include Bank of Baroda, Union Bank of India, blah, 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 a bunch of Indian banks. Okay, let's just give it that. The main use case of India's CBDC pilot will be to settle secondary market transactions and government securities. The digital rupee is expected to add more efficiency, bullshit, to the interbank market by reducing transaction costs of settlements, the RBI said. No, it's for complete and utter control over your citizenry. This has nothing to do with efficiency. This has everything to do with slavery. Every country that is thinking about a CBDC, if the citizenry allows it to happen and buys into it, you can kiss them goodbye. They are no longer citizens. They're 100% slaves. And the slave owners, the slave owners, the slave owners are the governments and their concomitant banks. Slave owners. I said it. I'll say it again. Slave owners. They are slave owners. why, Why is the left not losing their fucking mind on this? Because I don't think the left, much like much of the right, doesn't understand what a CBDC is. It's a slave chain. Don't do it, people. Don't do it. India's gonna go down. It's just, they're gonna do it. China's already done it. India's gonna do it. You know, Australia's probably gonna do it. That, oh, it's just bad. It's just, it's so bad. But the good news is 
is that Synonym has launched a mobile Bitcoin wallet with a new web protocol. Sean Amick from Bitcoin Magazine. Synonym, a Bitcoin and Lightning Network service provider, has released the BitKit wallet, a mobile Bitcoin wallet for both Apple and Android devices per release into Bitcoin Magazine. The wallet boasts many features such as portable social profiles, dynamic payable contracts, interoperable data feeds, and passwordless web accounts. Additionally, the wallet uses Bitcoin cryptographic seeds to generate keys for the company's newly developed web protocol called Slash Tags. Slash Tags enable users to take control of their data. The protocol does not require a blockchain, includes uncensorable social profiles, automatically updated contacts, contact payment preferences, passwordless authentication, and some additional features as well. Quote, BitKit isn't a typical Bitcoin app, said Paulo Adoino, CSO of Synonym. The Synonym team have managed to take wallets to the next level with a beautiful design and innovative, useful new features that will help ensure hyper-Bitcoinization. The Slash Tags protocol is open source and modular, allowing the ecosystem to be widely accessible to builders. In fact, the company even released a software development kit, which serves as a sandbox or playground, which developers can use to simulate various Slash Tag use cases. Quote, as more and more people lose control of their data to big tech companies and lose control of their assets to big banks and institutions, we felt the need to create open alternatives that empower civilians to reboot the web and the economy, said John Carvalho, CEO of Synonym. Moreover, on stage at the recent Plan B forum, Synonym announced two new initiatives, PAIR, a tokenized credit system for assets, products, and services, and the Block Tank Instant. Block Tank allows exchanges and wallet providers to quickly onboard users to the Lightning Network. So John Carvalho's synonym is moving full steam ahead. I like John Carvalho. And if you know where he came from, you know, the industry that he used to work for, I'm not going to say it, but he's come a long way. And I, I'm honestly really impressed with this, with this dude. I mean, he's just an impress. He's an impressive guy. It's like, like, like I Jack Mallers, you know, kind of thing. Uh, Jack definitely is taking the, you know, taking the main stage, but people like John Carvalho are out there guys. They're building their own thing and they're, they're providing their own solutions and it's, it's not a coin guys. Synonym is not, it's not a token. It's not an ICO. It's not an altcoin. It's a platform. A slash tags is more coherently is the, is actually the, the platform. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. It's a different way of thinking about a lot of things that we do every day. If you're confused about what's going on with synonym, don't feel bad. I'm still trying to wrap my head around 80% of what John's trying to do. Doesn't mean that he's wrong. It just means that I'm not in a place where I can really understand some of the things that Slash Tags provides. But I know that the stuff that I do understand makes me really damn excited. And I cannot wait to see what this wallet actually looks like. So I'm going to move you over there so I don't kill your story. Uh, is there anything else that's going on? Oh yeah. Wobi stablecoin plunges 70% as Justin Sun readies a Tron replacement. But I thought Tron was everything. Uh, Blockworks written by 
uh, Shalini Nagarajan, I think is how you pronounce it. The swan song for Huobi Global's dollar-pegged stablecoin is playing out. HUSD fell to a low of 28 cents this morning, four days after the crypto exchange announced that it would delist the token. Huobi, one of the largest crypto exchanges in the space, was recently snapped up by a Hong Kong-based asset managed firm, uh, management firm about capital, which is reportedly spearheaded by Justin Sun. While Sun has denied being in charge of About Capital, the controversial crypto entrepreneur is an official Huobi advisor following the deal. Sun told Coindesk earlier this month that Huobi would probably list all the cryptocurrency against USDD, a Tron-based stablecoin. Huobi recently said all users HUSD would be converted to Tether at a one-to-one ratio, the stablecoin was launched in September of 2019, with its market capitalization briefly peaking at $1 billion in May of 2021. However, HUSD since failed to capture significant market share, hovering as low as $80 million last month. HUSD no longer features on Huobi, but the token continues to trade on decentralized shitcoin exchanges, with MDEX contributing nearly 90% of the daily trade volume. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so uh, yet another stable coin bites the dust. Okay. So well, the stable coin was supposed to be at one to one to the United States dollar. It has lost over, you know, just under 75% of its entire value in four days. Yeah. So, um, do you really need a stable coin? Some people do, I, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not one of them, but ask yourself, do you need a stable coin? Chances are real good. If you're just a regular Joe or Jill or whatever, you probably don't need a stable coin. And I would stay away from all this shit because it's like, this is, th- th- these de-pegging events will probably continue for quite a while. Again, in the face of the Terra Luna ecosystem collapse, it really flushed the toilet and a lot of turds are now floating out to sea, but I don't think that toilet is still, it, it, I don't think that toilet has stopped flushing yet. I think there's a few more turds to to get out in into the ocean before we can finally say, all right, let's let's crank it up again. But you know what'll happen, right? You know what'll happen. Some other asshole is going to do the exact same thing that Duquan did. They're going to buy a lot of Bitcoin. It's going to protect their assets, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to go get venture capital and they're going to leverage themselves 100 to 1. And they're going to go find somebody to give loans out of Goldman Sachs. And they're going to wonder why it all fucking falls apart two or three years later because they're trying to apply the legacy financial systems way of thinking to something that is not that. It's like a blood transfusion. Think of it this way. If I have like, I don't know, let's be like, I don't know. Let's say I got a positive blood and I get B negative blood in a transfusion. I'm probably going to fucking die from a massive internal anaphylaxis shock. Just a widespread immune reaction. That's just from like every blood cell that comes into contact with a blood cell that is not its own type, along with the associated immune system and white blood cells all over the place will freak out collectively. I I will probably end up with a fever of 105 and then dead. You don't survive shit like that. And that's kind of what we're doing, y'all. We're trans, we're, 
we think we need a blood transfusion for some reason. And we're trying to, to get stuff from the legacy financial. We're trying to get legacy financial blood and put it into Bitcoin's bloodstream. And what happens? Major anaphylaxis. It's not working. <laughs> and we don't need it. That's the thing. Why are you operating on a patient that is just fine? You don't need it. Bootstrap it. If you really got a low time preference in Bitcoin, then fucking prove it. Stop taking loans out against your Bitcoin at leverage or even at 1x value. Go minus 10x value. Do 10% of whatever your Bitcoin's worth take. If you really got to put it up and got to get a loan and have to use the rails of the legacy financial system to do it, your Bitcoin is not worth $20,000 as of today. It is worth $2,000. And even then, it's not a guarantee that you won't get your ass liquidated. But you'll have a hell of a lot better time than pegging the value of your Bitcoin on loan at $50,000 in 2020. Stop doing shit like that. Stop transfusing blood from the legacy financial system into what we're trying to do here in the future. It's never going to work and it's only going to lead to widespread death. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Gotta have a joke for Monday. Dad says jokes. <coughs> Before my surgery today, the anesthesiologist asked me if I'd like to be knocked out with gas or if he could just hit me over the head with a canoe paddle. So I guess it was an ether or situation. Yeah, that's terrible. Okay, if you want to support the show, Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. Speaking of Podcasting 2.0, let me get over to my Fountain app and see if I got any boostograms from, uh, was it, God, my last show was fucking Tuesday. Sorry, guys, but things do get in the way. I wish they didn't, but they do. So I was unable to give you shows on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But honestly, I don't think many people would have listened because that's when Elon was walking into Twitter headquarters with a sink. Yeah, you can let that sink in. Get it? Ha <laughs> ha. Whatever, dude. No. Okay, so here we go. Uh, let's see. I think I've already actually read that one. Wait a minute. Hold on here. Hold on. I think something's going on here, man. I think I got a hold of the wrong show. Pretty sure I did. Yeah, pretty sure I did. Let me let me do this one. Do 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 because the boosts are worth it. Hmm. I don't know what's going on here. I, don't know. I guess I'm just having a bit of a brain fart. Anyway, uh Pitar with fifty thousand sats is thanking me for the Ramaswamy story. He says good story. Thanks for sharing. Uh, you're welcome, dude. You're welcome. I've got other stories too, but I don't want to start doing that just yet. Uh, CA Danner, 10,000 Satoshi says mass adoption meetup number seven in Framingham, Massachusetts is at exhibit a brewing company, Canadian author, freedom convoy spokesperson and co-organizer Benjamin J. Ditcher will be joining us as our guest speaker on November the 17th, 2022. Again, that's seven, uh, November the 17th, 2022. 
BJ Ditcher is a Bitcoiner and is the author of the soon-to-be-released Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. Foundation Devices of Hardware Wallet Passport are, are sponsoring. Join us for pizza, beer, and freedom. Shout out to host Greg. Hell yeah, dude. Go to the Mass Adoption Meetup number seven in Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, M.A. Is that Massachusetts? I'm pretty sure that's Massachusetts. So Mass Adoption Meetup number seven, Framingham, Massachusetts, November the 17th, 2022. Thank you, C.A. Nanner. Letter 6173 with the Striper Boost. Being a maximalist is the best thing you can do for family and friends. I agree. Greggy has 500 sats here. Says can't stop, won't stop spending you sats because you just keep saying shit I like to hear. So don't stop. Uh, can't stop spitting that reel. <laughs> Thanks, Greggy. I appreciate that. Jim Leahy, I'm afraid for the calendar. Its days are numbered. Get it? Get it? <laughs> Yeah, hot potato head, 250 sats, no message. And user, shit ton of numbers, 100 satoshis, no message. Thank you, guys. And for the rest of you, if you want to support the show, Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. You can give me boostograms or you can stream me satoshis. And what app do I like to use the most? Well, I like to use Fountain App. And if you don't want to use Fountain App, uh, you can go find a Podcasting 2.0 enabled app on newpodcastapp.org. It's either that or .com. I'm still confused about that. Somebody set me straight. You do it through Boostagram, and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.